Church. Glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we got a couple of guys up that would love to bring one to, right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to be picking up at verse 57. And we're going to finish up the Gospel of Matthew this morning. So we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 28. 20 verses there. Um, I've decided to finish up the Gospel of Matthew this morning, so next Sunday we'll do a special Christmas uh, study, and, and then uh, uh, we'll do a New Year study, then in the, in the New Year we're going to start a book, a new book altogether. Kind of, you know, it's happened Wednesday night as well, we're just finishing up Daniel, and now we're finishing up Matthew, and then the New Year, two new books. Uh, praying about where I'm going next, uh, probably, I'm praying about the book of Revelation on Sunday morning, and uh, not sure where we're going on on a Wednesday evening, but we'll see. And now that I said that, I'll probably, you know, if the Lord changes my mind, we'll do something else. That's where I'm kind of leaning on that right now. But uh, this morning we're looking at Matthew 27. Uh, the title of my message is The Greatest Story Ever Told. You know, there are things that we call the greatest. Oh, this is the greatest. I'm the, the greatest this, the greatest that. I found a, a story about, uh, in 2002, there's a man by the name of Richard Wiseman who ran an experiment, a huge one. He wanted to find out the greatest joke ever told. So he launched a website called Laugh Lab, where anyone around the world could submit a, a joke and rate other people's jokes. He got 41,000 entries and about 1.5 million votes. And here's the greatest joke out of 1.5 million people. Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps. My friend is dead. What can I do? The operator said, calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence. Then a shot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, okay, now what? I, I, I don't know if that's the greatest joke I've ever heard. I don't know. You know? It's kind of sad, actually. <laughs> but there are these great things, you know, that they're labeled great. You know, the, the, the greatest show on earth, the Great Lakes, the Great Bambino, you know, Babe Ruth, the Great Depression. We say things like the, the greatest Christmas ever. 1965, Charlton Heston starred in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, which by far, I mean, it nails it right on the head. The, the greatest event in human history is the birth and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to look at this morning. If you remember, we left off in Matthew's Gospel with Jesus saying his final words there upon the cross. We looked at last week the veil being torn from top to bottom in two, signifying open access to God the Father. But at this point in the life of Jesus Christ, His disciples, I mean, they weren't around. They were devastated because Jesus Christ, the one that they've been hanging out with for over three years, has now been put to death upon the cross. He's been buried. All of their hopes, all of their dreams are shattered. They're gone. You can imagine what it was like to follow Christ for those three years and hear Him speak like no man had ever spoke before. I mean, we've been following the gospel for over a year and a half now, and we've seen things and heard things and go, wow, this is amazing. We've seen Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. 
We've seen Jesus heal the blind. We've seen him cleanse the leper. We've listened to him talk about the end of the age and when these things will be. We've seen, even seen Jesus raise people from the dead. But now Christ himself has been crucified. He's been killed. He's been buried. Things suddenly change. And that's what we're looking at this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the great preparation. Number one, we're going to see number two, the great resurrection. And number three, we're going to see the great commission. First and foremost, the great preparation. Let's pick it up in verse 57 and verse 66 and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir... We remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning, for this opportunity to be in your word, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us and instruct us in all things, to give us not only information, but application in our lives that we might be drawn closer to you and our relationship with you. Father, we do pray for anyone who's joined us that is yet to have that relationship with you, Lord, you would open their eyes and they would see, Lord, the joy and the peace and the forgiveness of sin that they can have this morning. Lord, thank you for this time. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in verse 57, we see a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was wealthy. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And he was a disciple of Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that Nicodemus was also uh, accompanied with Joseph. And both Nicodemus and Joseph were what you might call, you know, secret disciples of Jesus. You know, Joseph of Arimathea hasn't really yet openly confessed Jesus, but after Jesus had been crucified, and now it was time to, to bury Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea came forward, publicly declared his allegiance and his commitment to Jesus Christ. We often look maybe at Nicodemus and, and Joseph as being criticized for being a secret disciple, but think about this. Where were the other disciples at this time? Where's Peter? Where was James? Where was John? They were hiding. It was Nicodemus and Joseph who were at the cross ministering to the body of our Lord. Now perhaps you feel like maybe you don't do that much. You don't walk on water very often. Don't heal a whole lot of lepers lately. You're not really maybe vocal about your, your faith in Christ at your workplace. Listen, like Joseph, like Nicodemus, you will have opportunities Quite honestly, I think sometimes the secret disciples are the ones who really shine when the going gets tough. The quiet ones, the unknown ones are, are often the strongest. They're the ones that are often looking where they can serve without getting any recognition. Hey, how can I serve the Lord without just, just I just want to serve the Lord. I don't want uh, no fuss about this. I just want to do what God's called me to do. 
So it was with Joseph and Nicodemus. Their moment had arrived. Now the tomb that Joseph had purchased, whether for himself or purposely purchased for Jesus, we don't know. But it was a wonderful provision for Christ. Because had Jesus not been buried in that tomb, his body would have been uh, discarded in the valley of Hinnom as other criminals or street people would have been. They were just thrown in this valley, which was like this big rubbish heap or this, this dump. They were constantly burning trash there in this valley of Hinnom. In fact, that's, this is where we get the word Gehenna from, which is translated in our Bibles as hell. See, had Jesus' body been thrown there, it would, would have been burned. There would have been no uh, real empty tomb for the disciples to visit there. There would be no evidence of the resurrection. But you see, this was a great preparation. In fact, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, God's word prophesied of this event. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 9 of Jesus. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 700 years before Jesus was born, it says he would be buried in someone else's tomb. And that really did signify our Lord's life. He never really owned anything except the clothes on his back. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow an upper room to have the Passover with, with his disciples. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. Someone had said it was no big deal. He only needed it for three days. <laughs> so he's laid in the tomb. And this act by Joseph of Arimathea, by going to Pilate and begging for Jesus' body, which Pilate would not release until they knew for sure that Jesus was dead, it just confirms prophecy, fulfills Scripture. Once again, they would make his grave with the rich. And notice in verse 61 we read, And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. They were right there watching where Jesus' body was being buried, what tomb it was. And the reason I bring that up is because over the years there are those who say, well, that first Sunday morning when the woman went down to the tomb to finish anointing the body of Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb. There just Others were there and they, they just kind of got messed up and turned around and, and went to the wrong tomb. Eh, wrong answer. This was Friday afternoon. They watched exactly where Jesus was laid and then came back early Sunday morning and knew exactly where the Lord lay. And then from verse 62 down to verse 66, we have the, the sealing of the tomb. Verse 63, they came to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. These are the religious leaders. They're asking Pilate, for Roman seal to be placed upon the tomb. And, and he gives them permission. He says in verse 65, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Now he's not saying, Yeah, you can have a Jewish guard there. No, it, it, you know, it, what he's saying is, is it would be like uh, you have a squad. A squad of Roman soldiers. Now a, a squad could be anywhere from four. More than likely there was ten to, to sixteen men that were sent to dispatch it to guard the tomb. And these weren't guys, you know, Jewish guys with a couple wooden sticks, you know, and standing in front of the tomb. These were Roman soldiers. Helmets, swords, spears, armor on. They're guarding in front of this tomb. Now for them, can you imagine how ludicrous this must have seemed? I, I mean, especially from a worldly standpoint with these guards. I'm sure they're thinking, man... This is the easiest gig we've ever had to do. Just stand in front of a tomb. The guy, he's dead. He's buried. He's not going anywhere. You know, he's dead. Hey, we'll, we'll do the job. Boy, were they in for a surprise. 
So they get the soldiers to guard the tomb. But that's not all. They're so worried that the disciples are going to do something. They ask for the seal to be placed upon it. Then what they would do, they'd actually take a wax seal. And if anyone broke that seal, it would be under the, the judgment of Rome. So the, the, the rock, the, the stone was rolled in front of it, then it was sealed with wax, it's still on it from Rome, you can't get in. No one was coming out. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, the grave was sealed by the Roman government, and the Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb. And anyone tempting with the seal to mess with it, they would be executed. See, all this was done, this great preparation, according to the religious rulers, we got to make sure Jesus stays in there. But the reality of it is, this great preparation was by God to show the contrast. As much as men can want to do and want to seal Jesus and keep him in that tomb, you have no power over my son, Jesus Christ. And he would rise from the dead. And that brings us to our, our second point, the resurrection. All of the Gospels record the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the most important event in human history. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, his birth, his teaching, all the things he did would be of no avail if Jesus were still in the grave. In spite of how wonderful Christmas is and, and the birth of Jesus Christ, truly all of our hopes rest on that empty tomb of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 through 18, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. If Christ had not risen from the dead, there's no hope. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 28. We read, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now these are the same women, you know, last at the cross, first at the tomb. Now they're, they're to be commended. Again, while the other disciples are hiding out, they're, they're fearful, they're afraid, they're freaking out, these women were at least doing something. Look now, verses 2 through 8. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, I bet they did, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. So here we read of the resurrection of Christ. Now, the reason for the woman uh, coming back to the tomb was because on that Friday, they had to hurry up because the moment the sun went down, Sabbath began. And they couldn't do anything more after that, and so they weren't able to properly anoint the body of Jesus. So they were they hurried in their preparation. So they decided to go back on Sunday morning after the Sabbath was over to finish the job. Now on their way, in the other Gospels, we're told that they're actually talking about how the stone is going to be removed, how they can roll away the stone. That was their big concern. And this stone weighed about two tons. One big heavy rock. So they're on their way to the tomb, talking to themselves, wondering, trying to figure it out, and, and, and how they can properly anoint Jesus' body. And, and you know, it's funny to me, how, how we worry about things that, that God has already gone before us and taken care of. 
You know, we go, oh, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And God has already gone before us and taken care of the what-ifs, the what-abouts. He's done that. Look at verse 2 again. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now the stones rolled away. The Gospel of John indicates, uh, the Greek phrase for that indicates that it was picked up and carried off, set to one side. Think about the power just to, to, to move that stone. Now, Second Kings chapter 19 tells us that one angel destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. So this angel shows up and it's like two-ton stone. It's nothing, you know. Just I'll pick it up and move it, you know. It just does it. And now I love it. He, he sits on top of it, just sitting there, it's like you know, just just waiting for these ladies to show up because they're wondering how's the stone going to be moved up. And the angel, you know, sees these ladies show up and and say, "Hey, do not be afraid. I know you're seeking Jesus who was crucified." Yeah, don't be afraid. I just moved a two-ton stone, you know, and treated it like it was nothing, you know. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. I got news for you. Jesus is alive. Verse 6, we read, He's not here for He is risen as He said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. I'm sure we've all heard this before, that the stone was rolled away not so Jesus could get out, but so the woman could see in. They could truly see that He was not there. Now, this is important for us to understand doctrinally that the physical body of Jesus was gone. That when Jesus rose from the grave, his body was gone physically. It bodily rose from the dead. Because there are those who like to teach, well, it was spiritual. The spiritual body of Jesus rose and his body really laid there and saw corruption. But even in the Psalms, the psalmist tells us, speaking of the Messiah in Psalm 16.10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a physical, bodily resurrection. That's important for us to understand. Because when they went into that tomb, what did they see? They didn't see the body, but they saw the grave clothes still lying there on that slab in the shape of the body. As if Jesus just passed right through the wrappings. Like a cocoon in which a butterfly had left, the cocoon would still be laying there perfectly intact. Now, we don't have time to go into everything that took place but, uh, during that, that the resurrection. But just to say, as we'll read, that there are those who said, well, someone stole the body of Jesus. Listen, no thief is going to get back those Roman, past those Roman soldiers to begin with. Secondly, how would they get the stone rolled away? But thirdly, if you stole the body of Jesus, if you're coming in to steal it, you would run in, you would grab it, and you would go. You'd run out. You're not going to get in there and go, okay, let's unwrap the body first. Let's make it look like the body's still laying there because, you know, we don't want it to look like someone stole it. No, you get it and you run. You wouldn't leave the grave clothes lying there. Another proof that Jesus Christ physically, bodily rose from the grave. Only one person in history in the history of mankind too, who has ever physically, bodily risen from the dead with a glorified, eternal, immortal body. Now we know that Jesus rose other people from, from the dead. Lazarus, you know, had been dead for a few days. And Jesus there comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. Which is a good thing he said Lazarus because if we would have just said come forth, all the graves of people would have come out. But there's a difference there. The difference is Lazarus had to come out of the grave in that same old mortal body and he had to die again and go through the whole process of dying all over again. That would be horrible. 
It's like, oh man, I was in the presence of the Lord. This has been awesome. Now I gotta do this all over again. But Jesus came out of the grave by his own power and an immortal body and an eternal body never to die again. That's the difference. One was coming back from death. The other was a true resurrection. Only Jesus Christ had been truly resurrected. So the evidence of the resurrection, number one, the empty tomb. You can't explain the empty tomb. You can't, you know, you cannot other than to admit that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The others say, well, you know, Jesus' body was stolen. The disciples stole the body. Well, again, how did they get past the Roman soldiers? How did they remove the stone? Why are the grave clothes still there? And if they did steal the body, why did they go on to die as martyrs for what they knew to be a lie? It doesn't make sense. And you can't explain the evidence of his transformed life, a changed life. See, they, they weren't expecting the resurrection. They were hiding in fear. But having seen Christ risen, it transformed their lives. And even to this day, we see lives transformed because people have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, on top of all that, when the disciples started preaching the resurrection, you know, people tried to stop them. They tried to stop them. See, so if the Romans or the Jews stole the body when the disciples started preaching the resurrection, all they would have to do was, was, was get the body, put it on display on an ox cart and drive it down Main Street for all to say, see and say, hey, look, we have your Savior. He didn't rise from the dead. We have proof he's still here. They had no proof. They were unable to do that because the tomb of Jesus was empty. Now notice the first words of this angel. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. He says, Come see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. I like that. Come and see and go and tell. You might want to underline those words. We need to come and see, be convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we need to go and tell others of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure these ladies were freaking out, but at the same time they ran to bring the, the great news to the disciples. Look at verses 9 and 10. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came, and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I mean, here's proof itself. Jesus himself. Now think about this. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? His disciples split the scene. And when he was being tried in a kangaroo court... Peter was cursing and denying he ever even knew him. Now, if you were in Jesus' sandals, would you have said, go and, and tell my brothers I'm going to meet them in Galilee? Or would you have said, go and tell those losers, those guys that split the seam, and I, I'm going through all of this, that they're in hot water. And when I get to Galilee, they're going to hear it from me. You know, we have such a tendency to want to teach people a lesson, to straighten them out, to shake them up, set, set them straight. But that's not the heart of our Lord, our hero, Jesus Christ. He says, go and tell my brethren. I'll meet them in Galilee. They'll see me there. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 16, 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you in the Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. The one that denied him three times. The one that said, I'll never deny you. Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter. It's okay. I'm alive. Now, this is just one of the many appearances of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. There, were, there was a 40-day period, and in those 40 days, he appeared and disappeared and reappeared back and forth to his disciples. 
Sometimes he would show up in a room where the doors were locked, and, and other times he would just show up on a road with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking along and just talking with them, and they didn't recognize who he was. And then when he broke the bread, they said, oh, this was, this was Jesus. Did our, not our hearts burn within us? Or the time they're fishing out on the lake, and, and uh, Jesus is there on the shore and say, hey, guys, catch anything? You know, they never seem to catch anything. And, and then Jesus will cast your net on the right side. And as soon as they did and call all the fish, they knew, this is Jesus. And they come running up to the shore and Jesus fixed them breakfast. He appeared to them. The Bible says even at one time, 500 people saw him at one time. Total of 10 appearances that we know of, of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ before he ascended back, ascended back into heaven there on the Mount of Olives. So many infallible proofs, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, that he made himself known. These post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Again, a proof of his resurrection. Proof of the empty tomb. As I pointed out, the Bible says that 500 people all at once saw Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. Paul says they're still alive today. That is, during his time. I mean, think about that. If you could bring 500 witnesses into a courtroom... I mean, that would be a pretty good defense for you. Brought one guy in, yeah, you know, you're taking the word of one guy. But 500 guys coming in, you can't deny it. Now, Matthew includes something that the other Gospels don't. Look at verse 11, we'll look at verse 11 through 15. In verse 11, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard, these are the Roman soldiers, came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So remember, these Roman guards, they were freaked out by the angels, and they come and, and they're running for their lives. There's an earthquake, the, the, you know, the angel appeared, the stone rolled away. They passed out in fear, we read. They were, they were out like a light. Now instead of going to the Roman authorities and saying, hey, this is what happened, they're going, hey, hey, you know, we, let's go to the Jews and tell them what was going on. Look at verse 12. When they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And the saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. We'll bribe you. You take this money and you say that, hey, well, we were sleeping. The disciples stole his body. And, and, and if someone comes to us, if your authorities come to us, we'll verify the proof. Now, verse 4 says that, that when they saw the angel of the tomb, they, they shook for fear and became like dead men. They were passed out. Let me tell you, if you were a soldier and you were caught, passed out on a post like that, they would put you to death. You were not allowed to be negligent to your duties. In fact, I read one commentator that said if a superior walked up to a guard at his post, and if that guard was asleep, they would light his clothes on fire and burn them to death on the spot. Make sure we understand why they went to the Jewish leaders instead of to the Roman superiors at that point. But what amazes me is rather than the Jewish elders going, wow, he really did rise from the dead. He really is the Messiah. We need to believe in him. In their corruption, in their wickedness, in their perverseness, they're still trying to cover their bases. Oh, now what are we going to do? Well, I know. We'll say that the disciples came at night and stole his body. It's an amazing thing, the great lengths that people, non-believers will do to, to fight against the truth of Jesus Christ, the things that they'll make up to not admit Jesus truly rose from the dead. And they were bribed, and, and, and Matthew says in, in, in verse 15 that this rumor is commonly reported among the Jews even until this day. 
And I say even till our day. You know, people say all sorts of excuses like that. But let me tell you, to say that, that Jesus' disciple took his body is really pretty hard to swallow. When you realize that James was sawed in two for embracing the resurrection. Thomas had his brains beaten out with the club. Peter was crucified upside down. John was placed in a cauldron of boiling oil. These disciples died violent deaths. Many of them saw their families tortured and killed. And they continued to preach the resurrection. Listen, I don't have enough faith to believe that 11 men suffered brutally, watched annihilation of their families, and died violently for a lie. I, I can't believe that. One of them would have cracked. One of them would have said, no, 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 we, we took the body, we took the body. But they didn't. The resurrection is the most analyzed event in history and is the most provable. So you go, okay, the question needs to be asked, so what? If Christ is risen from the dead, so what? How does that apply to me and others in this world? I mean, there's no way I can exhaust that answer this morning, and I wouldn't try. But, but let me tie this all together. Let me give you six simple statements. I encourage you to write them down. Six, so what to the resurrection. The first implication, the first so what is, we have his truth. That is, if Christ really rose from the dead, then everything Jesus said he was and everything he taught is true. He said he was the Son of God. It's true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence of his divinity. Paul said in Romans 1.4, Jesus declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Declared, that means to be set apart as the Son of God, distinguished as God's Son. So the resurrection supports the deed of Jesus Christ and so the natural implication is that everything that he said is true. Well, what did he say? Well, he said a lot of things. I mean, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And he rose from the grave to prove that. No one gets to heaven except coming through Jesus Christ. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, speaking of his body. And he rose and he proved it. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's true. And he rose from the dead to prove it. Jesus said there really was a hell. Guess what? It's true. Jesus said there really was a heaven. It's true. Everything he said is true and is backed up by him rising from the dead. I mean, think about this. If you had a guy telling you all these things and then says to you, I will prove it to you by rising from the dead when I die. Now, if the guy didn't rise from the dead, you go, what a liar. I can't believe anything he said. But, you know, if he truly did, then you have to believe him. So, number one we have is truth. The second implication, the second so what is, we have is pardon. My sins are forgiven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, my sins are forgiven. Had he not risen, we would still be dead in our sins. There would be no sacrifice for our sins. So you know that we have our sins forgiven. Thirdly, the third implication of his resurrection is we have his power. So not only can I be freed from my past sins, but I can be freed from the power of present sins. Are you bound by anxiety and fear? You can be set free. Are you bound by alcohol? You can be made free. Are you bound by lust and greed? You can be made free. Are you bound by hate? You can be made free. Are you bound by covetousness? You can be made free. How? Through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The power available to us to live for Him. The power of Jesus that breaks the chain of sin and death. 
That's the fourth implication. The fourth, so what is, we have His presence. We have His presence. Drop down to verse 20. Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, He's not talking about a short guy named Lo. We've heard that before. G. Campbell Morgan was reading this verse to a group of elderly women one time at a rest home. And he came to this verse and he said, Oh, isn't this a wonderful promise? And one of the women came up to him and said, Dr. Morgan, that's not a promise. That's a statement of fact. He didn't say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you always. A statement of fact. See, because Jesus rose from the dead, you know what that means? It means that you'll never be alone. You'll never have to live alone. He is always with you wherever you go. Whatever you do, Jesus Christ is with you. There's a story about David Livingston. He was a great explorer and missionary to Africa when he was back in Cambridge at his alma mater and he was lecturing his students. His left arm laid limp at his side because it had been mauled by a lion. Not just once, not twice, three times it was mauled by a lion. Can you imagine that? I mean, it'd be freaky, but, 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 but here his arm's lying limp and, and one of his students asked him, Dr. Livingston, what is it that sustains you? What is it that has kept you all of those years as you explored Africa? You know what his answer was? Verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. He said this, and I quote, On those words I staked everything, and they never failed me. End quote. See, because of the resurrection, Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You'll never be alone. The fifth implication of the resurrection, number five, we have his pattern. Since Jesus rose from the dead physically, bodily, guess what? We are going to rise from our dead physically, bodily. We'll get a new body. Now, when I say everyone, it's everyone. The wicked, the wicked, the, the, the wicked and the righteous will both be resurrected. All those that are in the graves will hear His voice and they shall be resurrected. Now, for the righteous, Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. Jesus also said that He's become the first fruits of them that sleep. You know, when you see the first fruit on a fruit tree, oh, man, it's awesome, it's exciting, and you're waiting for it to turn ripe. And, and, and then, man, you can see everything else that happens on the tree. This is great, you got this harvest. Well, Jesus Christ was that first fruit. He was the first to, to rise from the dead. That means we are going to follow suit. We'll be resurrected. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures the resurrection of the believer. It assures our eternal home in heaven. It assures a new body, one that's immortal, glorified, resurrected body. And I have to tell you, I am so ready for that. The older I get, the more aches and pains, and the more I groan earnestly desiring to be clothed in that new body, which is from heaven. That's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, For we know that if our earthly house is tended, destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So every morning I fulfill scripture, waiting for the Lord to give me a new body. Number five, the sixth implication of the resurrection, His punishment is sure. His punishment is sure. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, his person is true, his pardon is sure, his power is available, his presence is with us, his pattern is in his resurrection, is ours, and his punishment is sure. 
Jesus Christ will stand as judge over the wicked dead. The unrighteous at the end of what is known as the millennial period, the end of the thousand years, will be resurrected and they will stand before what is known as the great white throne judgment. And on that great white throne judgment, Jesus will sit. The books will be open. And everyone standing there will find that their name is not written in that book of life and they'll be cast into the lake of fire, which is eternal hell, which is the second death. Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not stand in judgment of our sins because Christ had already paid the penalty for our sins. I won't stand, you won't stand in the, in the great white throne judgment, but if you're not a Christian, if you've not accepted Christ, if you haven't believed on His name, received the forgiveness of your sin, you will be there one day. That's why as long as you have breath in your lungs, God has given you opportunity to repent and surrender your life to Him. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God came down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer, die, rise again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And every day one knee will bow, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in light of all of this, what would the Lord have us to do right now? This brings us to our third and final point, the Great Commission. Look at verses 16 to 20 and we'll close with this. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is commonly known as the Great Commission. Jesus is not only commissioning His disciples, but He's commissioning each and every one of us to go into all the world. He doesn't say just go to the Jewish people. He says go into all the world and preach the gospel. That word go is a participle and literally means as you are going. In other words, as you are going to the grocery store, or as you're going uh, to school, or as you're going to work, or as you're going to buy those Christmas presents, or as you're going to return those Christmas presents, wherever you're going, share the gospel, share the truth of Jesus Christ. I mean, in the light, in this light, the Great Commission takes on a much broader perspective. We're to be sharing and teaching wherever we go, whatever opportunity we have. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a universal gospel. It's a universal message. It's for every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every nation, every people. In fact, Jesus pointed out in verse 18 that He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth and He commissions us to go and teach in all the nations. And notice it says, in the name, singular, not names, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Declaring the triune God. He's a Father, He's a Son, and He's the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. And the commission is to teach whatever Jesus commanded them. Well, we have God's Word to know what Jesus said. You say, well, uh, I, I don't know that much. Let me tell you, I think you know more than you think you know. <laughs> Especially if you've been coming to this church for a while. You have a lot more embedded truth in you than you realize. You know, someone may ask you a question and you go, I know the answer. It's right here. And, and you open up the Bible and you're excited. And, and there might be another time where they ask you a question. You go, well, I'm not so sure about that one. I, but I'll get you the answer. And you start rediscovering the truth of God's Word. Let me tell you, that's very exciting. 
I love bringing God's Word to people who've never read it, who've never read certain verses, and they're just blown away by, oh, I can't believe this says this. It's kind of like, you know, the difference of going to Silver Dollar City with a bunch of adults or a bunch of kids. You know, when a kid goes to Silver Dollar City, what's the fastest ride we can go on? When an adult goes to the Silver Dollar City, what's the best food we can eat? And then after you eat that best food, you go, isn't there that big rocking chair still there that I can just crawl up into and take that big old nap? I mean, take a child and they, and to, to Silver Dollar City and they see it in a whole different way. You start seeing it through their eyes. You're rediscovering it again. It's the same way with God's Word. Through the eyes of a new convert, a new believer, man, it re- revitalizes your life, your walk with the Lord. It's exciting. It's fresh. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Are we fulfilling that great commission? Are we seeking to bring the gospel to this generation? Have you tried to lead someone to to faith in Jesus Christ? See, Jesus, he's not giving us an option. This isn't a, a suggestion. It's a mandate. It's a command. Go and make disciples. Let this great commission be a part of our lives. Now, I want you to notice something else here where Jesus says, go, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's power in my life. There's power in your life. Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit, that resurrection power to be that witness for him. It's available to us because he's alive and lives within us. He gives us that power to share our faith and watch others come to faith in life, for them, their faith in Christ and for themselves. I say that because we're not going out on our own strength. We go out as we yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Go preach the gospel for the sake of those that don't know Christ. Go and make disciples. For the sake of the young believer, don't let apathy rob you of being a blessing to them. For the sake of maintaining an exciting, fruit-bearing walk with God, don't ignore these commands of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And I want to do that as we close this morning. I want to pray. I mean, we've had a wonderful time in the Gospel of Matthew. I could start it all over again and we would see even more things than we've ever even noticed before. But I want to close with doing what He's asked us to do. To pray. To pray for more laborers. And I pray that right now in this room, right here, right now, that we would be that answer to his to, to the prayer. That there be those of us that are willing to say, Lord, I'm ready to fulfill this great commission. I've never really tried. I've never really made an attempt to share my faith, but, but I want to. I'm going to make myself available. This Christmas, I'm going to share with that relative, that friend, that, that, that I'm going to speak out in the love and the power of Jesus Christ, my Savior. I'm going to share the good news. I'm going to share the gospel message. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then you need to hear the gospel message and you need to respond. And I encourage you to do that. If you want to give your life to the Lord as soon as service is over, come up and talk to one of the elders who would love to pray with you. But for us as believers, let's answer that prayer. Let's be that those laborers for, for the rest of this year and on into 2020, that we be those laborers going out preaching the gospel, making disciples, being sent out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that the tomb is empty, 
that by putting our faith and trust in you, receiving the forgiveness of our sin, we now have your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. We have your word to keep us on the right path. Lord, and your word says you've told us to go, but Lord, I, I know for some of us at times it, it can be frightening. We can be intimidated in sharing our faith, overwhelmed. Maybe not even know where to start, but Lord, you've told us to go. And you said you would be with us as we went. So what really do we have to fear, Lord? I pray, Father, for this Christmas season and on to the new year. Lord, that you would help us to take bold steps of faith and that we would share the hope of the gospel. Lord, use me, use us to bring others to faith in you, Lord. Help us to obey the world. Obey your word, Lord, and go in all the world to preach the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for just the opportunity we have this coming week to point people to you. Use us, we pray, as we go our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.